Amen. Well, are you ready to get into the word today? Amen. How many of you are old school enough that you actually have like a, a, a printed Bible with you in the house of the Lord? Awesome. If you don't mind sharing with some other folks today. No, I know we typically put the scriptures up on the screen and, uh, and many of you, you've got digital versions, you've got downloadable Bibles. That's great too. Uh, I, I'm just glad to know that when technology, you know, wants to fail us, the, the lamp of the word of God never burns out. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. And I want to share an unusual picture of Jesus. I just want to say before we even get into it, of all the images of Jesus that we have in the Word of God, this has got to be one of the most unusual pictures of Jesus. And today I'm beginning a series, we're simply calling it Prayer. Prayer. Look at it with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12 through 14. I think you'll understand what I mean by an unusual picture when we read the text. It says in verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now skip down with me to verse 20. This is the next morning. They're walking by the same path, and it says in verse 20, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I told you, odd story. I mean, this is a little bit of a weird story. It, I don't know how you read the scripture, but, but when I read this story, it doesn't sound like the Jesus they told me about in Sunday school. I don't know, any of you old enough to remember like the flannel board? The flannel graph, yeah. Did you ever see a Jesus, a Jesus like scolding a tree? Like I never saw that picture. Like Jesus like angry and cursing a fig tree in this moment. It doesn't sound like the Jesus that I'm familiar with. He sees the tree. It's morning. He wants some breakfast. He goes over. There's no figs. He curses the tree and leaves. Just, I mean, like. All, all the conservationists hate this text. Like, how could you? We're supposed to love the trees. We love, I curse you. Jesus just causes the thing to die right there. It, it, it looks irrational, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. It, now, some of you are too spiritual to follow me on this line of thought, but let's just be real for a minute. This looks irrational. I mean, Jesus... He curses a tree because it's not bearing any figs. And honestly, if this were anybody but Jesus, I would think this is irrational. Because the Bible has many stories of people who had anointing and gifting and supernatural power from God, but they used their power for their own reasons. I think about guys like Samson. 
Over and over, the Bible says that Samson was, uh, he would have the power of the Lord come upon him, and he had incredible strength. But when you read his story, nine times out of ten, he used his power for his own selfish reasons. At one time, he got mad at a bunch of Philistines, and the Bible says he captured 300 foxes, and he tied their tails together in pairs. And then he lit them on fire and sent them through the grain fields just to burn up the Philistines' harvest. Like, nowhere in that story did God tell him to do any of that. This is just... Samson losing his mind, okay? Or what about the story of Moses? They're going through the wilderness, and the people are complaining about thirst, and God says, Moses, I want you to strike the rock, and I'll cause water to flow from the rock. And he does, and the water flows, and all the people are happy. But years later, same scenario, the people are grumbling, and and Moses cries out to God, and God says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock, and I'll cause water to flow. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Moses gets an attitude. He's frustrated with the people. He takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And lo and behold, miracle of miracles, God in his grace allows water to flow from the rock again. Even though Moses' attitude was wrong and God had to go back and deal with him about his attitude. In that moment, he used him. Can I just pause here? This is like an addendum to the sermon. Because I feel like some of us, we've gotten confused about the things of God because we've looked at the gifting that people have and, and, and the character that maybe doesn't measure up to the gifting, and we've been confused about how the kingdom works because you see gifted people without the character, and God uses them. And then you wonder, like, is this what it's supposed to be like? I mean, why is God, why is God using that person? Wouldn't it make more sense if, if somebody got in the flesh or they had a bad attitude or, you know, some, some famous, you know, singer or talented musician, and all of a sudden their heart's not right? Wouldn't it be better if God just took their talent away? Like, oh, okay, well, your heart's not right, so you're not going to have any vocal cords this morning. No, that's not how it happens. They get up there, they sing like a lark, they perform, they pack out stadiums, and then they get in the headlines for a moral failure, right? We've all seen that before. And so can I just say that that God's giftings and his callings on our life are irrevocable. It's there. And so if this was anybody other than Jesus, I would assume that's what's happening. Like, okay, yes, you, you have the power, you know, to, to speak and, and do incredible things. But let's be honest, you, you're just a little hangry right now. I mean, you got up this morning, you were hungry, you were in a hurry, you didn't get breakfast, you saw a tree, you thought it had figs, no figs, you cursed it. Jesus, you're just being irrational. But I can't come to that conclusion because, after all, this is Jesus. He's the one who never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He's the one who said, I only do what the Father tells me to. So I have to look a little deeper in the text. I have to press a little farther and just wonder what is happening. And let me give you a little bit of what I uncovered in my study. A couple things that you learn about Palestinian fig trees. One is that they they bloom more than once a year. The first uh, figs come out in May. Early, early summer. They come out in about May. And then there's a second harvest that comes around September or October. So, so nine or ten months out of the year, you can get figs off of one of these fig trees. So pretty normal that you would expect most of the year to find figs. Another thing I thought was interesting about the text, they're in Bethpage. Bethpage is the town between Bethany and Jerusalem. They were going back and forth. Do you know what Bethpage means? It means house of figs. So that's like walking into the international house of pancakes and them saying, we all out of pancakes. 
Like, no, you can't. You are the house of figs. So Jesus is at a place called the house of figs, and he wants some figs. But Mark tells us in verse 13, and we read it, Mark said it's not the season for figs. Now, now we know because of what happened the day before this what time of year it is exactly. The day before this was Palm Sunday. So Jesus, is, this is the Passion Week. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem by Friday. He'll be crucified by Sunday. It's resurrection morning. We know exactly what time of the year is depending on the year. It's either March or April. It's, it's the spring. So Mark's right. It's a little early for figs because they're at the Passover and they're not supposed to ripen until around May. But here's something else I found interesting about fig trees. They actually produce figs before they produce leaves. And, and it says, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. So Jesus is not just being irrational. Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf in the house of figs. And he expects when he's going to get over there, he's going to find something to eat. There's a message that he's trying to communicate here. How many of you believe that all of the Bible is inspired? All of it's inspired of the Holy Spirit. So this is not just Jesus being irrational. There's something he wants to tell us. And Mark does something interesting in telling this story. He, he, kind, of, he kind of builds a case. He, he starts with a story, and then he gives us a, a, another story, and then he follows that with a conclusion. And you got to understand the first part in the, in the second part to understand the substance in the middle. It's like a truth sandwich, okay? So this is the first piece of bread he's laid on the table. Jesus is cursing a fig tree. Now, there's something else that's going to happen. It's going to help us understand this a little bit more. And then finally, we get to the truth that makes it all make sense. Now, this next part of the story is the substance of the story. And, and if that first part doesn't sound like the Jesus you know, this second part is really going to blow your mind. Because the day just gets more weird at this moment. Okay, so Jesus curses the fig tree, and then they continue to go into Jerusalem. Now, pick up the story with me in verse 15. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Can you get this scene in your mind? Like the temple courts, not like the church lobby, okay? This is a massive area. He says Jesus wouldn't let anybody cut through the temple courts. He wouldn't let anybody pass. He's kicking over tables. He's not just cursing fig trees. He's kicking over tables. He's turning over the tables of the money changers in this moment. I mean, this is, this is an extreme moment. And what's even more extreme about this story is that it's not the only time it happened. You can read about this story in all the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell about this moment right here at the beginning of Passover, of Passion Week, on this Monday of Passion Week. They tell about the story. They give us insight into what happened there. But John, the fourth gospel writer, he tells about a different story. In John chapter 2, he talks about a story that happened about three years earlier when Jesus first began his ministry. 
that time he walked into the temple, he saw all the, the stuff that was happening. He went home. He made a whip out of cords, came back the next day with the whip and began to crack the whip and kick over the tables and rebuke the money changers. He said to them in that moment, he said, get out of here. You've turned my father's house into a marketplace. And then all the religious leaders, they come to Jesus in John 2, and they're like, what authority do you have? What, what sign can you show us to show that you have the authority to say these things and, and to do these things? Jesus said, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. But, but this story that we're reading in Mark 11, this is different from that moment. In this story, Jesus doesn't have a whip. In this story, it's, it's Passion Week, and, and he doesn't just go in and like tear stuff up and crack the whip and then leave again. Matthew 21 tells us that he began to heal the sick. He began to open the eyes of the blind and cause the lame to walk. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus began to teach the people and that the people were hanging on his every word. In all three of the synoptic gospels, they, they have this next verse verbatim. This is something that they all remember vividly that he said in that moment, and they all recorded what we have in Mark 11, verse 17. I, I want you to hear this verse. Verse 17 says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Get the emotion of this moment. I mean, this isn't like Jesus sitting on a rock on the side of a green pasture teaching his disciples. This is Jesus. There is, there is dust and feathers flying. This is Jesus kicking over the tables. He, he's stopping people. You cannot come through here. Go around, go around. You're not here to worship. Go around. He's not letting people come through the temple. And he says to these people emphatically, does it not say, God has said, my house shall be called a house of of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a den of thieves and robbers. And the emotion of this moment and the clarity of this statement is the reason that I chose this text to begin a series on prayer. Let me ask this question. What, what is it that makes Jesus angry? What do you think makes Jesus blood boil? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today, and forever. So I would propose to you that Jesus gets just as angry today about the same things that angered him then. And can I just say the church is about a lot of things. There's a lot of things we're called to do. There's a lot of things that are important that we do. We, we worship God in singing and encouraging one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We teach the word of God. We preach the word of God. We baptize believers. We evangelize the lost. We disciple the found. All of these things are important things that we do. But Jesus did not stand up that day and say, my house shall be called a house of singing. He didn't say, my house shall be called a house of sermonizing. Or a house of evangelism. Or a house of, of, of service or compassion. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if all the things that are important that we do as a church, none of those things leave, lead us to an encounter with God unless we actually engage God. 
And if we do all those things and we don't engage God, how many of you know we've missed the mark? We've missed the point of the whole thing. Prayer is how we encounter God. Prayer is how we commune with the Father. There's a verse of scripture that's just been in my heart all week, and we're going to end with this verse later, but I want you to hear it now. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and it says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Some translations say, let us come boldly into the throne room of grace. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can I tell you, church, the songs and the sermon are not the centerpiece of the service. The throne of grace is. If if, if all of this that we do on a Sunday morning does not lead us to the throne of grace, church, we've missed it. And as Jesus stood there that day and he saw all the stuff of worship happening, he saw the people uh, at the exchange tables exchanging their money so that they could give their offering. He saw people buying animals so that they could make a sacrifice. He saw people uh, congregating, coming and going uh, in the courtyard. He saw all that. But if it doesn't lead to a heart that seeks God at the throne of grace, then we've missed the moment. The throne of grace is where we find help, it says, in our time of need. Can I tell you, the Bible is chock full of invitations to call on God in your time of need. Psalm 46 and 1 tells us God is our refuge. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. Psalm 50 in verse 15 says, call on me, saith the Lord, in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Jeremiah 33 and 3 says, call on me, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Over and over and over again, we have an invitation to call on the Lord in a moment of trouble. And I want you to hear this today. Hear my heart. Transformation doesn't come because we sing a melody. Transformation doesn't come because you take good sermon notes. And I'm sure you are. Transformation comes when we access the throne room of grace. That is what this is all about. That we come into the very presence of an awesome and a holy and a gracious and a merciful God. You want to know what Jesus gets fired up about? He gets fired up about the appearance of spiritual activity without power. There's foliage on the vine, but there's no fruit. There's a lot lot of stuff happening, a lot of people coming and going. Big crowd here today, big crowd today. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus gets fired up. Here's the crazy thing about the story. The money changers, they needed to be there. It wasn't like these people were, you know, out out of step with the will of God. They were doing the thing they were supposed to do. People are coming from all over to worship at the temple. And you have to use the right currency to bring your offering to the priest. And so you need money changers there so that you can get the right 
type of currency and give your offering. There are people traveling from a long distance making pilgrimage for this Holy Week. It's just not practical to, to carry the oxen or the, the lamb or the goat or the pigeons for the sacrifice. And so it just makes sense that there would be people there that would sell you an animal so that you can come and you can offer a sacrifice to the Lord. What they were doing is not wrong. How they were doing it is wrong. How they were doing it is the problem. The, the, the money changers, they knew. They, they had people over a barrel here. You, you've got to have the right currency. And so they were extorting them with a ridiculously high exchange rate. They were taking advantage of people's heart of worship by taxing them to exchange their currency. Those that were selling the animals, they knew that like, hey, you've come all this way. You've got to make a sacrifice to atone for your sins. So you're going to buy whatever animal I offer you. And, and instead of meeting God's holy requirements for a pure and a spotless sacrifice, they, they would just sell them any kind of crippled little lamb. They'd sell them any kind of animal. I mean, it was like trying to get a hot dog at a theme park. Like you're going to pay $12 whether you like it or not. So it's supply and demand. And so they're taking advantage of all the people. And then other people, uh, the courtyard was huge. And they weren't even coming to worship God. They were actually trying to get to the other side of town. But to go all the way around, man, what an inconvenience. So we'll just cut through the courtyard. And the Bible says Jesus wouldn't let him through. Stop. Stop. No, if you're not coming here to pray, don't come. Go, go, go away. Go around. This is a house of prayer. Can I tell you it's the same today? God is not impressed with the size of the crowds. God could care less how many people come in and out, drink the coffee, shake hands. God says, my house should be called a house of prayer. So he kicks over the tables. God said the same thing in the Old Testament through Amos. People were all coming and doing all the stuff that religious people do. God said through the prophet Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Wow. That's what God said. Why? Because they were, they were coming. And they were doing all the stuff, but they weren't entering the throne room of grace. They, they, they were just checking the box. He goes on to him and he says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I've had enough of your grain offerings. I don't want to accept them anymore. I don't want your choice offerings. I don't want your fellowship offerings. Away with me with the noise of your songs. Like unplug the band. If you're not here to encounter me in my presence, if you're not entering the throne room of grace, there's leaves, there's no fruit. God gets fired up when he sees leaves and no fruit. And when he sees people filling the house, without a heart to seek his face. God says, that's a barren tree, and he curses it. See, the, the danger with prayer is that prayer is so familiar to us. We, we feel like there should be, there should be a, a more grandiose plan. Like, like, there's something more, right? Like, what's gonna be the key? What's gonna be the, the, the real secret? Or, or we show up on a Sunday like, man, I, I hope he's got some kind of like secret revelation I've never heard before. Like, give me something I can tweet about. Like, I, tell me something profound. Pray. My house shall be called a house of prayer.
I was fascinated this week. The Lord spoke something to me about our church. And I'm sure most of you don't really care about this stuff, but just come into my world for a minute. Like in your career, uh, in leading churches, there's lots of books written about it. There's, uh, and sometimes to our demise, we, that's the problem. We think we're professionals. <laughs> It'd be better if we burned all the books on the shelf and just prayed more. How about that? But, but, but there are lots of books, and there's lots of studies that have been done on church. And, and, and in the church, one of the things that's fascinating is, is that there are what they call growth barriers. You know, like, like most churches are less than 100 people. And so they, they set an a arbitrary number at 100 and say 100 is a growth barrier. You know, over 83% of churches are less than 200 people. So it's funny because we look at like the mega churches and the Instagram stories and we watch the reels and, and, and we think like, oh, wow, that's, that's, like, that's literally 1% of the churches in America. And thank God for those churches. I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying, you know, context. 80 plus percent of churches in America are less than 200. And so there's been studies done about all of these things and these different growth barriers. And this is one that I found fascinating. Over and over again, studies have shown that it's actually easier to grow a church from 2,000 members to 4,000 members than it is to go from 200 members to 400 members. So easier to grow 2,000 more people than it is 200 more people. Say, so why? Why is that? Well, you, you understand this from business. I mean, if you've got a small business, you know, a local diner, uh, and, and you want to build out and you want to add another one in the next town, the problem with that is only grandma knows how to make those biscuits, right? Like, that's the problem. It's hard to scale that. But, I mean, if you're, like, operating Chick-fil-A, how many of you know they figured it out? They figured it out. You can open five more of those restaurants by Wednesday. And so it's kind of that way structurally in the church. They say once you've gotten to 2,000, like it's easier to go from 2,000 to 4,000 than it is 200 to 400. Here's why that matters to me. That's where we're living right now, like as a church. The, the 400 barrier, if we'll call it a barrier, um, the 400 barrier is right where we live. As a church, we'll have, you know, Christmas. We had Christmas, and, man, there was like 500-plus people here. And I was like, man, that was amazing. Four services, that was awesome. And then within a month, you know, we're back down to like 350. And then we have football Sunday. It's a big Sunday. Like, wow, 497 people here. And then, like, the next week, we're like 370. And then we're down to 320, and we kind of float in there. And then it's Easter, 550 people here. What an awesome day. And then we kind of trickle back down under four. And then it's New Life Sunday. We had 530 people here. And then we kind of trickle back down. So just numerically, that's where we're sitting. So I'm fascinated by this. And I'm just thinking about it. And I'm going, huh, that is really interesting. Those stats are pretty true. Like, that's right where we're at. And then the Lord spoke something to me in my heart. The Lord said to me this week, he said, we're not up against a 400 growth barrier. You're up against a 100 growth barrier. And immediately, my mind went to our Wednesday night prayer gathering where we've been running between 50 and 70 people on Wednesday night. And I want to tell you today what the Holy Spirit told me. If my people will make my house a house of prayer, you'll never have to worry about the capacity of what God can and will do in his church. Amen. 
And I'm just convinced in the most practical way, if, if, we, could, if we could garner 100 people that would just say, I'm going to seek the face of God and pray from 7 to 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night, I promise you, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be worried at all about anything that God wants to do or whatever the next level that God has for this church is. See, I love what Carl Henry said when he said, prayer is the means that God has etched in the cosmos for the advancement of his purpose. My heart in this series is not to just talk to you about prayer. My desire is to lead you to pray. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come and, and we're gonna kind of shift in the, the end of this service here from a I speak, you listen, spectator mode to a participatory mode. And I wanna invite you today in just a moment to just to go before the throne room of grace with me. Knowledge alone makes Christians haughty. Application, application makes us holy. It, it, it's, it's the doers of the word. Jesus said, don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. Can I just say, knowing how to pray is not the same thing as praying. Showing up at church is not the same thing as approaching the throne of grace. You want leaves or you want figs? Do you want the appearance or do you want the substance? Because we have an invitation as the people of God to enter into the throne room of grace. Now, just before we pray, I, I just want you to see, just want you to see the, the rest of what Jesus is trying to communicate. He, he gets up, he curses the tree, he goes, he cleanses the temple. The next morning, they're, they're on the same path again. Peter sees the fig tree and says, Jesus, look, you cursed that tree and it's dead. And Jesus responds in verse 22 of Mark 11. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done. Peter, you're, you're looking at this little fig tree. You think that's something? If you would move by faith, if you would believe that you'll receive the things you ask for, you could move that mountain over there. And then Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it'll be yours. You know what Jesus is teaching? He's saying prayer is powerful. All these people coming with their offerings and exchanging their money and, and bringing their sacrifices, if they only knew the power that they could wield by moving into the throne room of grace, prayer changes things prayer is the power of the church Jesus says to us today my house shall be called a house of prayer I want to invite you to stand with me if you would all over this room we're going to take these next few moments and we're just going to pray sometimes physically shifting our posture it, it makes all the difference I, God can meet you 
anywhere. I get that. There's people watching this service online. God can meet you watching a service on Facebook. But if you're in the room, if you want to move towards the altar, I want to encourage you to do that, just to find a place. Sometimes we just need to step out and say, God, I'm moving into the throne room of grace today. We're going to stand. We're going to honor the Lord in this moment. And I want to invite you to just call on him with me. Father, today we thank you for your presence God, we thank you that before we got up and got to your house this morning, you knew what we needed. Your word says you know the things we need before we ask. And God, I thank you that today your ear is inclined to your people. You're watching, you're waiting. Not to see who's singing on key, not to see if the sermon comes off right, not to see if the hospitality team does their job or or the kids' ministry lets our kids have a great time. God, you're waiting to see who's going to come boldly into the throne room of grace. So right now, Lord, we just move in. And I encourage you, whatever need you have in your life, would you just begin to move into the throne room of grace? where the Bible says we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So, Lord, right now we call on you. We call on you. We lift up our families to you. If there's someone that the Lord has on your heart today, lift their name up to the Lord. Begin to call out their name. Lord God, would you touch them? Lord, would you heal them? Would you save them? Lord, for those that are sick in body this morning, Lord, we call out to you. We enter in to the throne room of grace today. Lord, would you come? Would you come and move by your Holy Spirit? Lord, right now, do the supernatural thing that none of us can orchestrate. Do the supernatural thing that none of us can can fabricate. Lord, thank God for good service, but Lord, we've come to enter the throne room to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Lord, I pray for marriages right now. Lord, I pray for children right now. Lord, for grandparents and aunts and uncles. Lord, those that that we love, that maybe they're far from you, maybe they're struggling today. Lord, we claim your word in Acts 16 over our families that declares you and your household shall be saved. They shall be saved. Come on, allow the Holy Spirit to direct your prayers right now. Maybe maybe he's bringing something to your mind that you haven't thought about at all today. Allow the Holy Spirit to meet you in the throne room right now. As you open up your mouth, as you begin to just lift your voice to him. Father, we pray today for this nation. God, we pray as we move into an election week. God, we ask you to move in America again. Lord, for too long we've taken advantage of the statement, God bless America. But Lord, your word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So Lord, would you stir in America to bless God? Stir our hearts. Your word declares righteousness exalts a nation. Lord, turn our hearts back to you. And Lord, let it begin in the church. Let it begin with your people. Give us a heart of humility. Give us a heart of contrition. Lord, you declared the promise in your word. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I'll hear from heaven. Then, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll heal their land and forgive their sins. God, we pray today that you would turn the hearts of your people back to the throne room of grace. Lord, move in this nation. 
Lord, move in this church. God, we ask that you would stir up a revival in the hearts of your people and an awakening in the hearts of those in this community. Call the dead to life in Jesus' name. Lord, bring an awakening in this Susquehanna River Valley. God, we ask you to move. Move, Lord God. As we come boldly, we don't come arrogantly, but Lord, we come boldly. We come with confidence to the throne room of grace, believing that we're going to receive mercy, believing that we're going to not get the judgment we deserve. That's the mercy of God. Lord, we come confidently believing that we're not going to receive the judgment we deserve. We come boldly believing we're going to receive grace. That means we're going to get the favor that we don't deserve. God, thank you for, as we sang it earlier, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. They're following us all the days of our life because we dwell in the house of the Lord. We dwell in the throne room of grace. God, thank you for your presence today. Thank you for stopping us here in this moment to do more than have church, to do more than show up, to do more than just exhibit the leaves of spirituality. But God, you've called us to cultivate the fruitfulness of intercession and prayer. Before we close this service today, I, I want to just share these important words that Jesus says. Right, right after he says, listen, if you pray and believe you'll receive what you ask, you can say to this mountain, be removed. Right after he says that, in verse 24, he says this. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. This is powerful, church. Jesus is saying, right, right after he says, your prayer is so powerful that you can move mountains, he then says, you can't do anything in prayer if you're harboring unforgiveness. Wow. Wow. So can I just encourage you Right now, as we stand praying, can I encourage you today, if there's unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone, to give that to God right now. In fact, the next verse is, is not in my Bible. There is no verse 26 in the later translations. But earlier translations say that it says the same thing that Matthew 6, 15 says. And what Jesus said in that moment is this, but if you do not forgive other sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's the principle here. If you don't forgive other sins, God will not forgive your sins. And, and, and some of us, we haven't experienced the grace that is on the shelf in the throne room because we haven't prayed a two-word prayer. I forgive. I forgive. God can unlock the storehouse of his throne room to you with those two words today. And here's the thing. It might not even be forgiveness of somebody else. It might be forgiveness of yourself. If that's you today, you say, I, I just, I need God to, to give me freedom from, I've been holding on to unforgiveness. I've been holding on to, to condemnation. 
I haven't forgiven others or I haven't forgiven myself. You can pray two words and find freedom and every resource from heaven at your disposal. So if that's you today, I want to encourage you to pray. God, right now, Lord, you know who you're dealing with in this room. You know who you're dealing with online. God, if we've been holding on to unforgiveness, if if we've been harboring jealousy or vengeance or hostility towards anyone else, God, give us the grace today. Give us the revelation of grace today to know that your word says you take our sins and you cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. You've cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Your word says you blot them out, never to be remembered. So God, help us to understand how extravagant your grace is towards us. And Lord, may it compel us to forgive, to say today, I forgive. I forgive those who stole my yesterdays, and I refuse to let them live rent-free in my tomorrow. God, I forgive those that hurt me. And Lord, I want to extend grace today to me. God, I forgive myself because you forgive me. Because your mercies are new every day. I refuse to live under the rock of self-deprecation. God, I forgive. And I walk confidently into the throne room of grace. To find mercy and grace to help me in my time of need. Thank you, Lord that your grace is sufficient. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. Come on, can we just bless the Lord today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for the word you're speaking over us. My house shall be called a house of prayer. I pray you have a wonderful day.